tuning in to the Lakewood Grace Podcast. We're a church in Lakewood, Washington, and whether you're listening from around the corner or from around the world, we're glad that you're here. We hope this sermon equips you to be the Christian the world needs today. If you'd like to learn more about us, head on over to lakewoodgrace.com. And now, for this week's sermon. I'm going to read the scripture, and then my wife, Lori, will be up here to share the message. And uh, let's get to it. This is from Luke chapter 7, beginning at verse 36. Hear the word of the Lord. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. A woman in that town who had lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus turned and said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Then Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. So I am Lori. I am not a a preacher or pastor. I am merely a sinful woman God is using this morning. As we'll kind of show in the the scripture, that sinful is important, that word. Um, Pastor James is in California. And we've been praying for him this summer because he's holding down the fort alone. Well, I'm in a lot of help, but holding down the fort alone. So we're praying for a short summer for him. And we're praying for a long summer for Pastor Brad, who's on sabbatical. And God can do both of those things. So Bill and I just got back from a week-long camping trip, uh, tent camping, with our kids and grandchildren. It was great. It was at the beach. There's sand everywhere. Literally everywhere, still everywhere. Even though I washed my feet, certainly my whole body, when we got home, I could really stand another foot wash again. What I don't think I would enjoy 
is a situation that arose in our scripture today. I can imagine having a special guest over for a lovely dinner and have it all interrupted by someone who was not only not invited, but then proceeded to make a spectacle of themselves at my party. So it happened during our oldest daughter's wedding. The town drunk, we lived in a very small town, the town drunk showed up at the reception Thrilled to be in the presence of such good food and wonderful people, everybody dressed up. What a party, right? Everyone was polite, but mercy, it was awkward. Bill did manage to round him up, handed him a big plate of food, ushered him out the door with thanks for stopping by to help us celebrate. Crisis averted, right? Here's another story, and this is years old. I don't know how old. But there's an Episcopal church in Oregon where a barefoot hippie entered the sanctuary after the service had already started. And he, the usher tried to greet him, but I mean, he just came right down the aisle and sat down right in front of the pulpit, barefoot. That wasn't done. He was on the floor, barefoot, in church. He wasn't dressed right. What on earth? Well, the usher's like, whoa, he wasted no time. He followed him right up the aisle, took off his shoes, and sat down right next to him. Took off his shoes, barefoot, next to him. That was mercy extended. Shoes or no shoes, that usher was a quick and compassionate thinker. As we head into today's passage of this awkward dinner party that we built just read, let's think back to Luke 6. Jesus had just healed a man's hand, in the synagogue, on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees were livid. Luke 6, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. Pastor James told us that was a major turning point for the Pharisees. Even though they had heard about all the miracles and they had seen them, some of them had seen them, from then on all they could think about was plotting ways to trap Jesus to kill it. No more Mr. Nice Guy, only righteous indignation. And yet in today's passage, it was a Pharisee who invited Jesus to his home for a sumptuous meal with other distinguished religious leaders. Imagine you are there. Try to imagine. The table is heavy with meats and delicacies, the aromas of breads and fruits, sweets, the smartest people and most devout men surrounding you, eloquent conversations, serious questions, and lots of wine, all while reclining. Such an honor, such a dinner party, so engaging that nobody notices when a woman walks in, uninvited, a woman of the street, a sinful woman, until they are stopped short by the smell of her perfume. Immediately, she is the center of attention, and suddenly everyone is thinking, what? Wait, what's going on? Who let her in? What is she doing? Why isn't somebody stopping her? Why isn't Simon dealing with this? Why isn't Jesus dealing with this? While everyone was in stunned silence, the woman knelt at Jesus' feet, weeping openly. Try and picture that in your mind. So much so that her tears were raining on his feet. If that isn't embarrassing enough, she then lets down her hair in the company of men, to dry his feet. She anointed his feet with a very expensive perfume. Very expensive. 
It was all so shocking. Maybe Simon was thinking, yeah, now I'll get some good dirt on Jesus. Catch him in the act. If only I had a cell phone. In fact, Luke 7.39 tells us that Simon thought to himself, he didn't say this out loud, he thought to himself, if this man Jesus was the prophet I thought he was, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Isn't it interesting that Simon thinks of her as a sinner, as if she was the only sinner there that night? It's funny that the Pharisee doubts Jesus can see what kind of woman she is, a sinner. (laughs) Jesus can't see it, huh? Simon fails to see that sinners are the only kind of people around Jesus. There is no other kind of person. Simon was able to show that he discerned or judged the woman's state of sin correctly, but he also showed that he judged her fully with an intent to find her worthless, to label her beyond God's grace. He totally missed that there is no other kind of person, no other people than sinful people. A few weeks ago in our small group questions of the week, we were asked, why does God use sinful people for his purpose? Indeed, sinful people are all he has. I'm here. I pray I'm being used by God. There is no other kind of person. Simon had placed himself outside of that reality. He believed, sincerely believed, that he was better than her by a long shot, most likely above reproach, fully and exclusively deserving of God's grace. And yet that very reproach is what we were warned about in Luke 6.37. Do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Jesus knew that Simon, excuse me, Jesus knew what Simon was thinking. Of course he did. He's Jesus, right? Probably the same thing everyone present was thinking. What would you have been thinking of her? She's interrupted your party with this crazy behavior. Seriously, what would you have been thinking? I know what I would have been thinking, and it wouldn't be the right thing. I wouldn't, I know it wouldn't be what I should have been thinking, so if we are quick to judge her and understand the horror of the way she crashed that party, we should probably cut the Pharisee some slack. He's horrified. Maybe we should be fair, you see, to the Pharisee. (laughs) Jesus was undoubtedly calm throughout the whole event, taking it in stride. Clearly, he knew what kind of woman was noisily weeping and washing and anointing his feet. He also knew why she was prostrate at his feet. Overcome and in tears, Jesus' focus was on the why of her actions, on her repentant heart. Jesus also knew that Simon's focus was on the what of the woman's actions, the kind of woman she was, and how deplorable her actions. So Jesus chose to address this kind of error in Simon's thinking or theology. Notice Jesus casually says, hey, Simon, I have something to tell you as if Simon had stated his private thoughts earlier aloud. Jesus is willing and wanting to have a conversation with Simon, even though it might appear that Simon is unwilling to speak. By then, Simon is all ears. Another opportunity. Surely Jesus will say something incriminating this time. But Jesus simply tells him a parable of two men in debt to a banker. The first one owes a huge amount. The second one a small amount. 
When neither man is able to pay up, the banker graciously canceled both debts. The question then put to Simon the Pharisee is, which of the two men would be more grateful? Which of the two would love the banker more? Even Simon could answer that correctly. I suppose the one who had the bigger debt forgiven. Jesus tells Simon, yeah, you judged correctly. But that's not the end of the lesson. Jesus had more to say. Now, kind of setting a little more of the, the theme, we've got this table laden, these you know, dignified men who think they're all that, and this woman, for all purposes, making a fool of herself right there on the floor at Jesus' feet. It was customary in that time when you had a dinner party, especially uh, invited guests to this kind of a thing, you would greet your guest with a, a kiss of peace. And then a servant of the house would pour cool water over your feet. You're dusty, it's hot, that's just supposed to cool and comfort you, it's supposed to feel really good. And then since they didn't have deodorant, <laughs> um, some kind of perfume or incense was placed on the guest's head. So keeping that in mind, in verse 44 through 47, we read, Then he turned toward the woman and yet said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. There it is. Whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Simon has been clearly told that the woman loves Jesus more than he does. It's clear. Her actions, demonstrative and embarrassing as they are, are a treasured gift to Jesus. That's the kind of gift he wants from us. Psalm 51, 17. A broken and contrite heart, God, you will not despise. This woman's heart was clearly broken and contrite. She knew her status before God. In contrast... Simon has shown them, hasn't shown the most basic customary hospitality, let alone shown any shred of regard for Jesus. He judged the woman a hopeless sinner and himself as righteous before God. Is that our attitude sometimes? What hospitality do we show to Jesus and his beloved? Simon's sole focus and his sole focus is maintaining his own station and power as an unchallenged, undisputed religious authority. He cannot imagine giving Jesus any honor or glory because he cannot see the depth of his own sin, the depth of his need for a savior. Maybe we can't imagine that for ourselves either. We like to grade sin, don't we? My sin isn't as bad as you know, his. That was the Pharisee's attitude. I love the analogy of comparing sin to drowning. Well, again, you need to get this in your got a little picture in your mind. Maybe that woman was drowning at 500 feet of water. I mean, she is way down there drowning. And the Pharisee was certain that he himself was only drowning at 50 feet. There's still 50 feet between him and there. That's so much better, right? 
Either way, both were drowning and in need of a savior. The woman knew it. The Pharisee was too busy comparing and contrasting sin to even realize he was drowning too. That's the reality of sin. Big, small, long, short, heinous, minor. All sin leaves us falling short of the glory of God and in need of a savior. And although you wrong and hurt others, all sin is against God, all of it. Psalm 51.4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And the same verse in the message, another version is, you're the one I violated, God, and you've seen it all, the full extent of my evil. It really is quite enough for each of us to think about, to ponder, to admit our own sin. That'll be time-consuming enough, so much so that we'd have less time to judge others with a critical spirit. Remember the whole log in your own eye? Remember that verse? Okay, so against you, you only, Lord, have I sinned. Let that sink in for a minute. You say something mean, you have a bad attitude, never, right? You exceed the speed limit, you slander, you gossip, you maybe shave a bit off your taxes, you spread rumors, but you don't routinely murder, do you? Do you? Of course not. You only think about it sometimes, right? But it doesn't matter either way because all of it is sin, not something we like to admit. But we are all sinners in need of a Savior. Give God your broken heart, the ugly heart. He is the only one who knows how to restore it and to save it. The woman certainly could see and feel the depth of her sin. In fact, the description of her encounter with Jesus is so powerful, it leaves us feeling something. I mean, if you really stop and imagine that behavior, what she's doing, you're going to feel something. The verb used for kissing in this scripture is descriptive of earnest kissing. The same verb used to describe the father kissing the prodigal son upon his return. Those of us who, who are parents can know if we've had an estranged child come back, we would be feeling a lot. It'd be earnest. The woman was earnest. She was sincere. Her complete focus was on Jesus. There might as well have been no one else in that room. No one else existed for her at that moment. She was so focused on Jesus' feet, in fact, that I wonder if she must have understood that the Old Testament passage in Isaiah 57, or 52, 7 was referring to Jesus. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who proclaims peace, who brings good tidings, who proclaims salvation. In a roundabout way, and yet very pointedly, Jesus used kind of new math to articulate the relationship between our recognition of our own deep-seated sin and our ability to receive forgiveness. After all, I can't be forgiven for something that I don't think needs to be forgiven. No one asked for it, right? Remember Jesus' commentary on the Lord Prayer? At the end of the Lord Prayer, he says this, For if you do not forgive those who sin against you, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your sin. It's not that he can't. It's that we haven't asked for it. Think of when you accidentally bump into someone and exclaim, oh, sorry, you know, you're just, you're going through the grocery store and wham. We move on and we don't even expect a reply, something like, oh, it's okay, no worries. Is that how we bring our sins before the only Savior of the world who can forgive? Do we honestly stop and admit them? Name them one by one? 
I need more time during time of confession. <laughs> Before the reassurance of forgiveness, you know that quiet time there? It takes me a minute or two to get real, to be honest, to kind of get vulnerable before my perfect creator. You too? Or is that longer silence a bit too uncomfortable? Yeah. In our text, Jesus recognized the woman's repentance. Her full, complete, vulnerable repentance and said, your sins are forgiven. The verb for forgiven used here is the perfect indicative. So we could translate it something like, well, here we go. It means that an action has occurred in the past that has continuing implications. So let's translate it something like, uh, her sins, which are many, have already been forgiven and continue to stand forgiven. Stand forgiven. She was showing her gratitude for the forgiveness she was already given and was sure would be given again, and possibly again, and again. That's faith. Her messy worship was profoundly sincere. The only thing Jesus needed to say was, your sins are forgiven. But she knew that already. Jesus' statement was more for everyone else to hear, everyone else in the room. They needed to understand what the messy, weepy woman already understood that Jesus is the only one with authority to forgive sins. The rest of the guys were wondering if he had that authority. Were they seeing it, understanding it? Finally, Jesus clarified what had happened that evening. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. She was saved because she believed in Jesus' authority. It was a huge gift since her sin was so immense. Now, please understand this. It wasn't her demonstration of love for Jesus that saved her. Let's say that again. It wasn't her demonstration of love that saved her, as if we can love Jesus enough to save ourselves. No. First, she believed that he could save her. He then forgave her, and her response was then an incredible, messy, interruptive, rude outpouring of gratitude and love that could not be ignored, especially at a dignified dinner party. It is because the others hadn't been forgiven much, hadn't even asked to be forgiven, that they couldn't understand her outlandish outlandish demonstration. Perhaps we ought to see each other tap dancing down the halls or singing at the top of our lungs more often in odd places, (laughs) more than we do. Surely we have been forgiven much, haven't we? Surely we have much deep love and gratitude to show God. Privately? Hmm, okay. So let's get to some takeaways. My love for Jesus will be in direct proportion to my awareness of my sinfulness. My love for Jesus will be in direct proportion to my awareness of my sinfulness. Am I willing and able to admit my sin and throw myself at the feet of him who forgives all? Or am I a bit too busy comparing my sin versus yours? Your standing before God versus mine. And honestly, heaven forbid that I live my life like I have no need to repent of anything ever because I'm not good. Heaven forbid. Second takeaway, have you ever really tried to acknowledge the depth of your sin? (laughs) It sounds like a time-consuming and exhausting thing because nobody ever wants to rehash their bad behavior. 
it is humiliating to lay it all out there. But that's exactly what God wants from you, your broken and contrite heart. I can tell you from experience that it's profoundly liberating and freeing. Nothing, nothing at all feels better than giving God the junk you've been carrying around and trying to hide from yourself and hide from God. God's response is not to condemn, but to forgive. He forgives and goes on loving you as if that junk had never happened. Incredible. That leads to change of the best kind. That leads to incredible love and sometimes some embarrassing behavior, like maybe crying in public. Not fun. Crying in church. Equally not fun. Singing louder than usual. Embarrassing for the person next to you. Raising your hands in praise in church? So when we sing our closing song this morning, sing it like you mean it. Sing it like you mean it. Third takeaway, do I look at others as Jesus looks at them? No, not all the time, not without stopping to think about it. Let's admit it, we are a lot more like Simon than we'd like to think. There are some people who surely are beyond the grace of God, right? I deserve grace, but they don't. Him? Her? The way they live? Jesus doesn't see any of us so much as we are, but as what we can or will be in him. Aren't you grateful that Jesus looks at you like that and didn't write you off? I know I am. No one is beyond grace. No one. Not even you. Not even me. So if you find yourself this morning, maybe for the first time realizing that you do indeed have sin to wrestle with and are aware that you can't make things right on your own, then it's definitely time to admit you need a Savior. That Savior is Jesus. So if you want Jesus to forgive you, save you from the mess, you can pray something like this. Jesus, today I can truly admit that I am a sinner and I need you as my Savior because you are the only one with authority to forgive. Take my heart, make it clean, Please help me live the way you want. So if you choose to allow Jesus to lead you, let us know. We want to welcome you to this messy Christian family. Be sure to find a church family because none of us can do it on our own. You need to attend church in community with others. Find a church. So in closing, I can only pray that it be said of us, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Thank you again for listening to the Lakewood Grace Podcast. Please be sure to subscribe and then head on over to lakewoodgrace.com slash connect where you'll find a link to contact us or you can fill out a communication card. Have a wonderful week. God bless.